0: It's Monday, the 1st of August, and this is the first day of something called the Sealy Challenge. The Sealy Challenge is being run by a US poet called Nicole Sealy, and the challenge is read one book of poetry a day, every day for the month of August. Eleanor told me about this, and at first I thought, God, it would be great if I could read a book of poetry every single day and get through the insane stack of books August is also Poetry Month here in Australia. Poetry Month is run by Red Room. I did a bunch of interviews for them last year. And I thought, maybe I could do something each day for Poetry Month. But what if I did the opposite of the Sealy Challenge? What if I just looked at a single poem for the entire month? So I've chosen a poem. It's not a favourite. I don't really know how this is going to go. But I'm challenging myself to look at this poem every day for the next month to think about it, to talk about it, and to see how far I can go. I've chosen a poem by John Forbes. A big part of the reason for that is I've never read John Forbes properly. I've read a few poems here and there. I know a little bit about him, but not very much. I've chosen a poem that is not very long. It's only 21 lines and I'm not really sure where it's gonna take me. For today, all I'm gonna do is read the poem through once. It's called Speed, a Pastoral. It's fun to take speed and stay up all night, not writing those reams of poetry just thinking about is bad for you. Instead, your feelings follow your career down the drain and find they like it there, among an anthology of fine ideas, bound together by a chemical in your blood that lets you stare the TV in its vacant face and cheer, consuming yourself like a mortgage. And when Keats comes to dine or Flaubert, you can answer their purities with your own less negative ones. For example, you know Dransfield's line, that once you become a junkie, you'll never want to be anything else? Well, I think he died too soon, as if he thought drugs were an old-fashioned teacher and he was the teacher's pet who just put up his hand and said quietly, sir, sir, and heroin let him leave the room.
1: I chose not to choose life. I chose something else. And the reasons? There are no reasons. Who needs reasons when you've got on?
0: Here we are in Carlton Gardens, which seems like as good a place as any to discuss The Australian pastoral. So what's a pastoral? Poetry Foundation says the pastoral poem faded after the European Industrial Revolution of the 18th century, but its themes persist in poems that romanticise rural life or reappraise the natural world. This poem very definitely doesn't do either of those things. This is a poem about taking drugs, watching tv, ignoring poetry, and dying early. So is the title just a joke? The other thing I was thinking about in terms of the pastoral was this poem from Evelyn Araluen's book Drop Bear. I probably don't need to tell you to read Drop Bear, but I will anyway. Read Drop Bear. You have to read it. This poem, It's a relatively long one. It's called To the Poets. And there's a passage in here that directly addresses this whole thing. Evelyn writes, You cannot redeem the pastoral. You cannot kill it and wear its skin. You cannot put back into the earth what you've taken from it. You've disturbed the ancestors. The words are wounds. And that's done now. Accept it. Learn it anew. I've had enough of your grief and your pot planting in our land. These are the dreamings we have now. Did you listen? Do you understand that the land doesn't need any of us? So is Forbes trying to redeem the pastoral at all here? Or is he trying to destroy it once and for all? If that's the case. He'd probably hate to know that pastoral poems are alive and well everywhere in Australian poetry. The Misty Cow poem, as I once heard them called. They really do grow like like weeds. How was your day? mine involved a five-hour workshop on staff survey results it involved branded notebooks and large post-it notes with the word expectations written across the top it involved exercises in which we ranked priorities with sharpie pens and at the end it involved writing compliments for the other people in the room. On post-it notes and handing them around while someone played drops of Jupiter from their phone. In 1996, in Poetry Magazine's special double issue on Australian poetry, John Kinsella says this. John Forbes argues that it is nostalgia that makes us look to the centre, read the bush, for national identity. As opposed to the city, where most of us in Australia live. This is probably the prime debate of mid-90s Australian poetics. Within two years, John Forbes was dead. He died at his kitchen table of a heart attack. Point is, with this title, it's exactly as Kinsella says in that article. If you're going to write a real pastoral about misty cows, that's a nostalgic move. Maybe even a disingenuous move if you're a poet who is living in a city like most Australians do. You know, we don't live in a land of sweeping plains and ragged mountain fucking ranges. We live in cities. And sometimes in those cities, a fun thing to do is to take some drugs. It's fun to take speed and stay up all night, not writing those reams of poetry just thinking about is bad for you. <laughs>
1: Choose good health, low cholesterol and dental insurance. Choose fixed interest mortgage repayments. Choose a starter home. Choose your friends.
0: Day five, I decided to get a bit of help with those first four lines.
2: Okay, first of all, I'm so delighted that you've had a good week. You sound like I can hear it in your voice. You're sleeping and you're fantastic. And I am loving it. I'm here for it. So I'm looking at the first four lines of the poem. And it's so (laughs) it's it is it's so us. Um, It's that angst which I mean, we laugh about it. But actually, it's really, really important. And it's also there's a there's a danger involved in writing poetry and the way it gets it's it has an insidious way of getting to the poet's mental health in both positive and negative ways and I recently listened to Jericho Brown as saying that people instinctively know that poets are dangerous. He calls poets, he says, poets to non-poets are hugely problematic because we are asking ourselves questions that those other people have been avoiding their whole lives. And I think there's something... John Forbes is pointing to that. Uh, He's pointing to the fact that it's so hard to write really, really well because so much of it is going deep into yourself and your feelings and thoughts that you'd rather not look into, they're very difficult, that it's easier to give yourself up to drugs and die. (laughs) Like, that's a better option.
0: Day six. Yeah, I don't know, I feel like It's not so much that Forbes would be afraid of looking within himself and afraid of what he would find. I think it is about wanting to write the great poem, like wanting greatness, wanting immortality. And just thinking about that is pretty horrifying. So why wouldn't you just take speed and stay up all night instead? I'm gonna move on from these lines, but I just wanted to say too, I really love the, the rhythm of the first two. It's fun to take speed and stay up all night. And then the way that gets broken in the next two, it gets kind of expanded out. Not writing those reams of poetry, just thinking about it is bad for you. Each line gets a little bit longer, but the first two lines, it's got this kind of, it's got this driving rhythm that makes it sound like it's going to be a certain type of poem, and then
1: that that all dissolves. Wear a Choose a three-piece suite on higher purchase in a range of fucking fabrics. Choose DIY and wondering who the fuck you are on a Sunday morning.
0: All right, Sunday Funday. This next bit kind of all happens at once. In between two dashes, he goes for a big indentation on the next line, and then he begins. Instead, your feelings follow your career down the drain and find they like it there, among an anthology of fine ideas bound together by a chemical in your blood that lets you stare the TV in its vacant face and cheer, consuming yourself like a mortgage. And when Keats comes to dine or Flaubert, you can answer their purities with your own less negative ones. And then we get the next dash. I'm not sure how obvious this is, But I have basically taken no drugs in my life. Uh, You know, when you live in Canberra, there's always a fire barrel and a joint going around. But that never really did it for me. Um, And that's really as far as it ever went. So I have no idea what the experience of being on speed is like. But this big run-on sentence suggests a little bit of it to me. We've got so much packed in between these dashes and there's a contradiction there you know he's he's not writing those reams of poetry but then all of a sudden it starts coming out and it doesn't stop
2: so uh, what did you do last night Last night. Last night was an A1 tip-top
1: clubbing jam fur. It was a sandwich of fun on ecstasy bread wrapped up in a big bag like disco fudge. Doesn't get much better than that. I just wish sometimes I could control these fucking mood swings.
0: All right, it's Monday, 8th of August. I almost forgot that I had to do this today. (laughs) This is getting hard. Um, I really want to bring in at this point a very beautiful article published in Engine in 2016 by Kath Kenny, called The Gifts of John Forbes. And this article tracks Kath's relationship or friendship with John um, from when she first met him in the early 90s through to when John died. I feel I need to somehow acknowledge the huge hole that Forbes left when he died in the lives of what seems like so many people. He shows up a lot in the work of people who I read. He's he's still very present in a lot of ways. And I think that's why I've resisted reading him for so long and, and why I really feel that I want to do a good job here. He doesn't really feel like... His mind to talk about, if that makes sense. So I'm going to borrow Kath's words just to paint a picture. She writes, When I moved to Sydney in 1994, our friendship continued without a noticeable pause. It's John here, was a common refrain on my answering machine when I came home from a day at work or from classes at the University of Technology, Sydney. Could you put me up for a few days? He'd ask. On one of his first visits he turned up at my flat in Stanmore in his bonds t-shirt and jeans, clutching a paper bag with either a bottle of alcohol or cough medicine. I can't remember which, but he usually had one or both of his addictions I'll close at hand
1: another glass of wine. have another glass of wine.
0: And we're back. It is Tuesday, the 9th of August. I'm just going to try to tackle the first few lines of this, what I'll call the down the drain section. Instead, your feelings follow your career down the drain and find they like it there among an anthology of fine ideas. Probably good to notice those little chimes, feelings, career, ideas, I had a dim recollection that Anthology of Fine Ideas, I felt like it echoed something and finally realised that it reminded me of a much later poem by Gig Ryan. This poem called Post It, which I think I must have heard Gig read one day. In fact, I think I've heard her read it a few times because it has the line, the anthology of Fireside Chats, and I can remember her getting a laugh on that line uh, at least once. Sometimes I worry that what I'm making here is an anthology of Fireside Chats. Of course, I have no idea whether Gig was thinking about this poem when she wrote that line, but I do know that John Forbes and Gig Ryan were close. She actually wrote the foreword to his collected and she finishes it by writing this, Forbes' poems, despising the bardic and the mystic, miss nothing of the world we daily inhabit and are truly himself, more than any photo, interview or television documentary could possibly describe. In John Forbes' work, poetry is thought and for the poet, the only true act. It seems peripheral then to survey the person, but of course he was like his poems, witty and brilliant. So that's a good reminder to keep my eyes on the poem and not get distracted by the details of John's life. So in this, in this first little bit with the lines kind of twisting the way a stream of water might as it goes down the drain, there are a few things down there. His feelings are down there. His career is down there, and this anthology of fine ideas is down there as well. It all just ends up in the same place, all down the drain. I don't know, that might be slightly negative reading. I'm in a bad mood. (laughs) I feel kind of sad today. I, I did go sit in the sun and listen to my favorite podcast and have something to eat and go for a walk. Still feel sad, so that's how we're feeling today. I'm gonna to feel sad. Try again tomorrow. All right, it's Wednesday night. Just got home from work. Work sucked. I know, you know.
3: But there was a bright spot in the day, a very bright spot. So, Alice, hi, this is me, Louise. I am. Giving you an audio response to this poem, Speed a Pastoral by John Forbes. My God, listen to that voice. What a smoke show. Maybe I should introduce myself more formally. Hi, I'm Louise Carter and I am reading Speed a Pastoral by John Forbes for Poetry Says with Alice Allen. I'm interested in the work of John Forbes. I admire him in a kind of a vague way. It's just sort of built into my Australian poetry DNA that he is an impressive slash somewhat legendary kind of guy. I remember, name drop here, I remember talking to Luke Davies about him when I met him in 2015 and he talked about how John Forbes was a, he was a removalist by trade. You can correct me if I'm wrong on that. But that just always stuck in my brain as really kind of poignant and interesting that a poet would be moving furniture. And I know we
0: said we were going to stay away from the biographical detail, but
3: this is interesting. It's very heavy duty, physical, boring job and then going home and writing poetry. I I mean, I'm always uh, looking at people with jobs and thinking maybe I should do that (laughs) because I still don't really know what I'm doing with my career. But anyway. That's all a
0: digression. Lou said so many amazing things. I'm going to need to come back to her a few times, I think, this month. Uh, I'm going to want to come back to her a few times. But she's actually gone back to the title and relates it to another poem, which I'd never heard of before.
3: I have to say when I first saw that title, I was slightly disappointed that the poem was actually about Speed the Drug. It actually didn't cross my mind. When I read it, I thought it was about actual motion and I was immediately reminded of a poem by Jaya Savage that appears in his uh, 2014 chapbook Maze Bright and the poem's called Wingsuit Journal and it's about, I think it's about hang gliding. Yeah, I mean the first line of this wingsuit journal is sugar glider, eat your sweet heart out. I'll read read the sequence, so it goes. If you're picnicking by the dip into the mile-long poplar run, my swoop is truly terrible to you. Some pissed-off Apollo, a horrible picture of insistence, the willingness to risk annihilation for the thing that most interests him, which is speed. You are frightened out of your jumpsuit by the fascism of his Zoom and forget it is only a sophisticated kind of falling. So, yeah, it's that moment in the poem where he says, um, for the thing that most interests him, line break, which is speed. I always loved that.
0: She's the best. Oh, my God. There's a bomb on
1: a bus. Once the bus goes 50 miles an hour, the bomb is armed. If it drops below 50, it blows up. What do you do? What do you do?
0: Okay. Well, it's Thursday now. Uh, It's beautiful sunshine out there. After a horrible rainy day, uh, my mood has markedly improved. I'm sure you'll be very happy to know. Uh, So last night, after after I got done with work and after Tom cooked me dinner and after I winched about my job for ages, I decided to call the biggest John Forbes fan that I know. And he started out by asking me the obvious question.
1: So Speed of pastoral? Yeah. pastoral,
0: why Speed of Pastoral? Why Speed of Pastoral? I basically picked it at random. I know yep. so little of Forbes' work, and this just felt like a good a door to walk through as any. I, I think it is probably as good a door
1: um, to walk through as any. And I think it was, this, like it was one of the doors, one of the really important poems For me, when I first
0: discovered John Forbes. So this is longtime friend of the show, Liam Fernie, who lives up in Brisbane. And I really loved hearing his description of first encountering Forbes' work, not with this poem, but with a different poem called Europe Endless. And having that experience that you have when you realize that someone has done someone has done this thing called poetry in a way that... You could imagine yourself doing.
4: I first read Forbes' work on his poem "Europe Endless" on the back of a copy of *Heat*, when it was and it was printed on the back cover because John had died. It was pretty much the first Australian poem, probably any Australian poem, but certainly the first Australian contemporary poem that I ever read, and went, "This sounds like what." I would like to do. This sounds like this sounds like people writing vital poetry in our language, in our idiom, in our grammar, in our vernacular.
0: All right, so I've got the collected here and I've opened it up to Europe Endless. I've never read this poem before. It does look a little bit like speed of pastoral. It's got a big indentation. I can already see staring back at me. Uh, let's let's see what happens here. Europe, endless. Fair hair and driving for hours along a freezing highway. It's true, she said. Our rock music's shit. But we invented sexual... (laughs) But we invented sexual attraction, didn't you know? In the 12th century. I mean, they had it before, but not... As a central defining principle. (laughs) In the subject's relation to the other. Oh, okay. But not as a central defining principle in the subject's relation to the other. I looked across at her. Her fine-boned face and deep, serious eyes. Thanks, I said. Thanks a lot. And the form I'm kind of talking about is uh, largely
3: left-aligned. But it makes prominent use of occasional uh, index.
0: Mm, yeah, get, na- get that space in there, have that, that big breath.
4: Yeah. I don't know if this is right. I was thinking about it last night. But they kind of have a sort of a shape to them, a kind of bulging shape that then tapers off.
0: Mm, yeah, um, he just wanders away from it at the end. There. He's like, mm. leave the room. Yeah, they both, they both kind of end in the same way. Heroin let him leave the room. Thanks, I said. Thanks a lot. I mean, I love that. I try to pull that move all the fucking time, but I, I can never quite get it to work. Uh, I always want to leave the reader feeling a little bit stunned. <laughs> but I think I just end up with um, them feeling like unsatisfied. Uh, Liam also asked me another question, which I wasn't quite ready to answer.
4: Can I ask you, um what you think the poem means? I was trying to read it last night in with Alice Allen on my shoulder trying to think what what are the smart things Alice Allen would ask herself?
0: I haven't got to sure. the smart things yet. Hang on, let me bring it up here myself. Um What does it mean, God? What does it mean? Um
4: Actually, I actually have
0: a good theory there, so... Okay, okay, well... I, I think what I'm doing is because I'm I'm trying to look at this each day for a month. And so I'm trying not to come to any conclusions until the end of the month, but... Um, I think... I think the key line is... Well, key couplet is not writing those reams of poetry just thinking about it is bad for you. It's about trying to numb and escape from the pain of wanting to be a fucking poet and all the things that you might do to get the hell away from that but that's only what I think today I'm only 10 days in just like Lou Liam said a bunch of other smart things that I'm going to come back to later on but for now let's get on with our evenings um, all right I'll let you get back to your evening thank you so so much have a beautiful please. night thank you bye, bye. It's Friday, August 12th, it's cold, it's going to be a super moon tonight, I am certainly feeling that. I went out today and I actually went out kind of half looking for John, just just wondering whether something would show up and I ended up at Golden Bowl Books on Sydney Road, very silent, very unfriendly. Uh, second-hand bookshop, which occasionally has some treasures in it. I have never seen any John Forbes in any second-hand bookstore that I've been into. Any city, anywhere in Australia, I just never come across Forbes collections. I don't think that's because they didn't sell. I think it's because the people that own them are holding on to them. So I didn't expect to find any Forbes, but I thought there's a good chance or some chance at least, I'm going to come across him in anthology form. And I ended up with this beautiful, beautiful anthology. Uh, it's a hardcover, Oxford Book of Modern Australian Verse, edited by Peter Porter. This copy was sold at Readings. The price tag here says 12th of December 1996, $39.95, which is no... Uh, No small amount for 1996. And, um, yeah, so two years before Forbes died. And he's in here. He is absolutely in here. A whole bunch of people are in here, actually. People I've had the pleasure of speaking to, many of whom I haven't. It is, unsurprisingly, for 1996. um, White AF. There's... There's... There's women. <laughs> There's plenty of women in here. Um, but yeah, almost all white people. Um, and the Forbes poems we have here include uh, there are five of them. So we have Europe, A Guide for Ken Seal, We have Death, An Ode, Love Poem, On Tiepolo's Banquet of Cleopatra, and Speed, A Pastoral. So that made me feel really good. That made me feel like maybe John was there coaxing me on. That felt great. Then I had another thought. There's probably some Dransfield in here too, isn't there? And I had a bit of a skim around and I found it. I found the poem. So there is, there's so much to deal with coming back to the poem in between the two dashes and Uh, I feel like I'm going to need more help to really unpack it all, but let's just skip for today. Let's skip to the end of the poem. Remember, it goes like this. This is after the second dash. For example, you know Dransfield's line, that once you become a junkie, you'll never want to be anything else. Well, I think he died too soon, as if he thought drugs were an old-fashioned teacher, and he was the teacher's pet, who just put up his hand, and said quietly, Sir, Sir, and heroine let him leave the room. So there are a number of Drancefield poems in here. It wasn't hard to find the one that John was talking about. It's called Fix. This is how it goes It is waking in the night, after the theatres and before the milkman, alerted by some signal from the golden drug tapeworm that eats your flesh and drinks your peace. You reach for the needle and busy yourself, preparing the utopia substance in a blackened spoon held in candle flame. By now your thumb and finger are leathery, being so often burned this way. It hurts much less than withdrawal, and the hand is needed for little else now anyway. Then cordon off the arm with a belt. Probe for a vein. Send the dream transfusion out on a voyage among your body machinery. Hits you like sleep. Sweet. Illusory. Fast. With a semblance of forever. For a while the fires die down in you. Until you die down in the fires. Once you have become a drug addict... You will never want to be anything else. Oh, what a life. That does not sound fun. I've got my copy of Candy here. Um, Luke Davies has mentioned earlier. Better it'll take me three seconds to find something equally horrific. That's why on heroin you can spend four hours squeezing blackheads that aren't even there, that you wish were there. Not even the monkeys know such sophisticated pleasures. So you can see how the arrival of crabs would be an exciting event, like a festival. We all want festivals to last, through the night at least. When the itching gets so bad that you actually notice it, through the sense-numbing wall of heroin, then you know you have a serious infestation. Oh, that's right. This is the point in the book where they both get crabs. Oh, boy. (laughs) Uh, I really don't want this episode to turn into some weird... um, like laudatory thing around male poets and male poets who take a bunch of drugs Uh, it's really not what I'm going for but that that is what this poem is about to a large extent although that said I did I did take some drugs myself good old nerofan we love it Saturday morning, got up super early this morning, Bit, bit nervous, uh, interviewing Tracy Ryan later today. You would think after six years of doing interviews that you would get less nervous, but turns out that doesn't happen. I was thinking last night, you know, what I was saying about how don't want to make an episode all about, you know, male poets taking drugs, and thinking about the fact that this poem is, it's a poem about poetry more than it is about drug taking, which makes it what they call an Ars Poetica. That's one of those terms that I i kind of decided on the wrong definition, and it's stuck. For ages, I've been thinking an Ars Poetica is when a poet writes A poem that kind of sets out their strategy for writing poetry, but it turns out, uh, having actually checked the definition, that it's just a poem about poetry. I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about the fact that Keats shows up a little bit later in the poem, and, you know, we can't know exactly which Keats John Forbes would have read, but we can assume that he's read The Big Ones. And I was looking at Ode to a Nightingale and thinking about how that's an Ars Poetica as well in a lot of ways. And yeah, read it through and, and found a really interesting little chime with speed of pastoral. Also aware that we're halfway through the episode and I've, well, are we halfway through? 13th of August? Yeah, we're kind of halfway through. Uh, and I've gone from saying pastoral to pastoral. <laughs> You'll just have to forgive that. So, yeah, have a, have a listen to this one. Ode to a Nightingale by John Keats. My heart aches and a drowsy numbness pains my sense as though of hemlock I had drunk or emptied some dull opiate to the drains one minute past and let woods had sunk. Tis not through envy of thy happy lot but being too happy in thine happiness that thou light-winged dryad of the trees in some melodious plot of beech and green and shadows numberless singest of summer in full-throated ease that's the first section drains hemlock dull opiate it's all there over a draught of vintage that hath been cooled a long age in the deep delved earth Tasting of flora and the country green. Dance and provincial song and sunburnt mirth. Over a beaker full of the warm south. Full of the truth and blushful hippocrene. With beaded bubbles winking at the brim. And purple stained mouth. That I might drink and leave the world unseen. And with thee fade away into the forest dim. Fade far away, dissolve, and quite forget what thou among the leaves hast never known. The weariness, the fever, and the fret. Here where men sit and hear each other groan, where palsy shakes a few sad last grey hairs, where youth grows pale, and spectre thin, and dies. Where but to think is to be full of sorrow, and leaden-eyed despairs where beauty cannot keep her lustrous eyes, or new love pine at them beyond tomorrow. So, where but to think is to be full of sorrow. Those reams of poetry just thinking about is bad for you. Sunday morning, you can probably hear that I went out last night, I went to a concert. This is the sound of 750 nerds having the time of their lives. You can either recognise this song, if so, yes, it's true. Uh, if you can't recognise it, it probably sounds like I went to a, a kids concert or something like that. Before I went to the concert, I went to Sick Leave, the poetry reading run by Gareth, Harry and Ursula. Uh, doing two things in the one night is the kind of thing I used to get up to all the time pre-pandemic, and now it completely destroys me. Uh, but leave was so, so, so worth it, and of course I was thinking about John Forbes the whole time, and thinking about how his refusal to be self-serious, even or especially when he's talking about serious things, is still so present, uh, Liam talked about this actually.
4: He doesn't, and I don't think this. Well, I don't think it suits any, anyone any well. But you know, the Americans love to try it on. But there's
1: no, um, there's a, there's a limit to the self seriousness, right? Definitely, definitely. Like if, if there's a, if there's a strain of Australian poetry, or like if the, if there is a mark,
4: or at least a mark of, you know, a good chunk of Australian poetry. It is
1: its awareness of its place in the world, its sense of humour. It's, you know, it's, it's complete unwillingness to take itself too seriously. Um, but, you know, at the same time, it, 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 it understands that this is poetry that, um, you know, if you want to be really fucking serious about this, and some people can choose to be, it is, you know, it, it, it's the oldest, one of the oldest, connected to the oldest forms of art, where it can consistently ask the, the biggest questions and and live with the uncertainty that comes with not knowing what those answers are. Um, and Forbes' work does that without, you know, ever being serious. And, you know, you think about a, you know... Um, Gareth's Eileen, book, for instance, you know, in in terms of the enduring influence, and you have on one sense this really odd series of letters
4: to a to a postie or to, to Eileen from a postie, and on the other, it's a an incredibly deep
1: meditation on work and the meaning of work and the future of work and all of those sorts of things.
0: And yeah, I, I really heard that last night, especially in Harry's work but really in everybody, in everybody who read. Which is not to say that this comes from Forbes at all, but just to notice that it is still so present. It is Monday. Time to get back to the poem, I think. I believe, class, we are up to the lines bound together by a chemical in your blood that lets you stare at the TV in its vacant face. And cheer I'm just gonna cut it there the chemical in the blood seems pretty straightforward we're talking about speed we're talking about chemicals we're talking about it getting into your bloodstream and changing the way that your brain works staring the TV in its vacant face and cheering I couldn't help but laugh the other night I was uh, scrolling around as you do trying to find something to watch And I ended up looking at Celebrity Gogglebox Australia. Oh, yes. So this show is people from TV, on TV, talking about television. I wonder what John Forbes would have made of that. I also saw a headline on some news website, which I shouldn't have been looking at in the first place, which said, Feeling Stressed? Baking shows are the TV meditation you need. (laughs) TV meditation. Oh, Jesus Christ. So, yeah, I've been reading the collected, the John Forbes collected poems in the background while I've been making this. And I'm happy to say I've now read everything up to and a little bit past when he wrote this poem. The collected is organized in chronological order. And I've been noticing TV as a recurring theme, pretty much always as a symbol for passivity and blankness. There's a poem which is just called TV, which starts out, Don't bother telling me about the programs. Describe what your set is like. The casing, the curved screen, its strip of white stillness, like beach sand at pools. There's a poem, I think this is a pretty well-known one, Rose Salavi, Celavi Rose Salavi? uh which you might know as the Julie poem. He he repeats the name Julie over and over again throughout, and that includes the phrase "She watches osmosis on television, combing her hair." A little further on, there's a poem, Event Horizon, which talks about lost appreciation returning like the ghost on a bad TV, but. I think probably the best example is this super weird and creepy poem called Baby, which I'll read before I sign off. Under the pastel shot canopy of daytime TV advertising, a baby is less asleep than she ought to be, given she's just been fed. A jingle begins with a pencil a man doodles at a function with, and to prove the no free lunch theory, big Checks date from this. Soon motherhood gets the nod. You pick up a biscuit, soak it in milk, and try to lull the baby. Refused, the pap falls on her bib. She blinks at the bright tangle of toys strung across her crib. You think how beautiful she is, and the soft TV agrees. Okay, we're back in Carlton Gardens. It's Tuesday morning, I'm on my way to work. Thought I would just pause here I'm really enjoying this, I'm having a really good time, it feels like I have uh, a friend (laughs) following me around every day. Um, What I'm going to do is uh, cut this into two parts because I think if I put out 90 minutes of audio uh, that that won't be popular, so I'm going to do this, yeah, part one, part two. This will be the end of part one Tuesday August 16th. Uh, I thought I'd end this bit just by seeing how much of the poem I have it might be none it might be all of it let's see so speed of pastoral it's fun to take speed and stay up all night not writing those reams of poetry just thinking about is bad for you. Instead your feelings follow your career down the drain and find they like it there among an anthology of fine ideas Bound together by a chemical in your blood That lets you stare the TV in its vacant face and cheer And then I think we go to Keats and Flaubert and when Keats comes to Dine or Flaubert you can answer there negative (laughs) and negative something with your own more positive ones yeah and then we go to the dransfield bit it all hinges together in this really cool way Um, hopefully i'll have it by the end of the month if you've listened this far
1: thank you thanks for following my strange experiment here